It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Over the hundreds of episodes that we have recorded here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, we tend to focus on human health and wellness emotional wellness, mental health, relationships, purpose, meaning, the entire roller coaster of life. One thing that I want to bring up in today's episode is something that we've maybe tickled you, dear listener, a little bit, but we've never fully dove into. And I want to preface this episode by saying that as content creators over the years, Whitney and I have talked about getting the same sort of core questions over and over and over again from people we know, random fans, new followers, new listeners. And for me as a dog guardian, there's one question that has come up a lot over the years. It keeps coming up, in fact. Anytime that I post pretty much anything about my French bulldog, Bella, there's sort of a paraphrased question that continues to come up. And it's, I was going to frame it as like, you know, my top 10 list of most annoying questions as a content creator. But the question is something akin to, wait, you don't feed your dog meat, your dog's vegan, you know that's not healthy, right? That's not good, your dog's going to be malnourished, your dog's going to die. I mean, I have gotten so many fascinating comments over the years. And I know Whitney, who has her wonderful dog, Evie, her Jack Russell Terrier, who is, who is like a, a dog tur to me. I feel like Evie is also my dog, I love her so much. It's just interesting over the years as plant-based content creators, as vegan impactors, that we've gotten so much pushback from how we care for and feed our dogs. And so in today's episode, we have uh, Lindsay Rubin to talk about this interesting subject. And for me, you know, since, since I adopted my dog, Bella Lindsay, it's been, gosh, I think next month it'll have been three years that she's been in my life. It's just been fascinating to see how many people continue to, I don't know, Raz me, haze me, question me about how I'm caring for my dog. It's really fascinating. It is really fascinating. And it's also interesting because I don't receive that as much, but I think I don't post nearly as much about what Evie eats as you do, Jason. And for some history, Lindsay, you probably didn't know this about me, but my I got Evie in 2009, I think. And gosh, is that right? Hmm. I have to double check the dates. I think that's right. <laughs> because the reason I'm feeling confused is that I actually did a video interview with David Middlesworth, right? Is that his last name or was his last name, Lindsay? That's right. We did a video together, which I think might have been his first video interview. And I'm almost positive that was 2009. It was at World Fest, which is now called Veg Fest or was. I don't even know if that'll... That event will happen again, thanks to COVID. But uh, anyways, I knew David for many years before, sadly, he he passed away. And V-Dog has been a huge part of my experience as a vegan. I'm not going to say dog owner. I prefer the terms companion versus anything related to pet or ownership. Because Evie is a, 
is truly a companion, you know, and that's something I want to get into today beyond the actual food, but just how we treat animals and how so many of us think of them as, as something that we own and something that's a pet of ours. But I try to look at my relationship with my dog and, and more of a organic or and I don't want to say equal, but maybe equal is a good term. That was something really fascinating to explore. But my point being is that V-Dog has been a really big part of my life. And I've loved seeing the brand evolve over time and just the the amazing family that it started with back then. You know, it's so funny, Whitney, I was planning on bringing that up because as a vegan for so many years, I've followed so many various vegan influencers and people on social media. And I remember first discovering you and your following and and everything you were up to through Dave because he spoke so highly of you. And that was where I was first introduced to the work you were doing and, and Evie. And so I love that you brought him up. Wow. It's actually making me emotional thinking about him because he was he was such a sweet man. And it's he, he was <laughs> it's making me cry. <laughs> I know. It's it's just like he was such an incredibly unique, funny, and smart individual. And he really had such a huge impact on the world when you think of it. I mean, by starting this, not only did he start this company along with the passion from his wife, Linda, who's also a, an animal rights activist in Sacramento. So it's, you know, it's a family affair. And he has had such a huge impact by not just starting this company, but he started it as an online company. I mean, we're an e-commerce first business and we've been that way even since when Dave started this back when Amazon wasn't anywhere near such a central driving force for e-commerce as it is today. So yeah, I love that that you knew Dave and you got to work with him and, and meet him back then. That's oh wonderful. yeah. I will link to this video that I'm referencing in the show notes, although it's super embarrassing for me and kind of funny, actually. It's embarrassing for a silly reason, simply because like I was just getting into YouTube. I was so passionate about it back then. And I went to this festival and and did all these interviews of people. Actually, I, I interviewed someone at Coconut Bliss, which is a company that's really grown over the years. And and like these were all these brands that were just starting to to get into this media world. And now so many of them, including V-Dog, have expanded and, and done great work on social media. And so it's nice to look back, but it's like embarrassing. To, <laughs> just like, you know, <laughs> when you look back on old photos of yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, why did I wear that? Or how did I do those things? Sean Monson also, I think, was at that same time. I spent the entire day interviewing all these people and Sean has gone on well, at the time, he he was very well known for his movie Earthlings, but he's gone on to do even greater things, in my opinion. But anyways, the other reason that video embarrasses me is because the audio quality was so bad. And I, I think it's interesting now that I'm a podcaster and I work so hard to get audio sounding good. I wish that video had better audio, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like using this brand new microphone. And I hope that anyone who watches it can still hear it well, because um, it, it's one of those special memories that I have looking back on how V-Dog and, and Dave had impacted my life because he was such a, a beautiful, beautiful person. And um, I'm so grateful, Lindsay, that you have continued the legacy of kind-hearted people at a mission-driven co- uh, company like that. Yes, I love that. I'm so glad you you brought up Dave. Okay, so looping back to, I suppose, the the original question that I wanted to dig into, which is maybe a bigger conversation 
before we get into, I suppose, some of the the language and ethical frameworks that, that Whitney brought up and how we treat animals, how we regard them, the language that we use around them. I'm curious over the years, what are some of the big hurdles and roadblocks you have had to and continue to overcome in terms of, I suppose, misinformation or, you know, ignorance, people may be making assumptions about feeding their, you know, canine companions a, a, a plant-based or vegan diet. Because as I said, you know, it's still something that, that I deal with pretty frequently. Anytime I post about Bella's, I get so many questions about her food or pushback or, you know, negative comments about what I'm doing with her. And I'm curious how that has framed your mission and your message with V-Dog and how you guys deal with that, if it does come up. Yes, it definitely does come up. It's definitely a central topic and driving force of the feedback that we get and return to people kind of as they understand, question, condemn these types of things. So in short, yes, it's the the hottest topic that we work with. And we've been doing this for so long. And I'll tell you that the number one way that we react is always with kindness and facts because this type of thing gets can get very polarizing and heated. People love their dogs. They want the best for their dogs. So when something comes up that is potentially harming their dog or someone else's dog, you know, people really get passionate and they stand up and they say, hey, I don't like this or this is wrong based on my information and the information that they've seen out in the world on TV and advertising. And a lot of what it comes down to is that we've all been misinformed. Dogs are not wolves. They're physiologically omnivorous, which means they can digest and make excellent use of starchy foods, of plant-based foods. They require a complete and balanced diet and those that nutrition can come from plant-based sources just fine. They do very, very well on it. And on top of it, they love the taste. So those are some of the things that we bring up as far as combating these notions. It's really, really rooted in, in misinformation. And I always like to joke about those commercials that maybe some of you have seen on TV where it's like, you know, a dog running and they jump over a log and all of a sudden they're a wolf in the wilderness and they're like running around and I don't know what they're doing. And it paints this picture of dogs really being wolves, but in reality, they've been evolving alongside humans for so many thousands of years. Mine sleeps in my bed. I open up a package of food to feed for him. He's not going out hunting. You know, he can't even catch a squirrel, nonetheless, a large sort of like bison type of animal to eat for dinner that night. So it's really grounding it in the sense of the facts of dogs being omnivorous and always responding to these questions and these debates with as much kindness and understanding as possible. That's so well said. And it is such an interesting conversation. I mean, we can certainly attest to how much our dogs like V-Dog products, especially the breath bones, which I think are one of the best vegan dog options uh, out there because our both of our dogs go nuts over them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they just can't get enough. And I, the formulation has always been so great. And and the wiggle biscuits, like, I mean, just the, the branding of it is so sweet. And yeah, it's interesting because when I first got my dog, I made a very conscious decision and I did a ton of research. In my heart, I was hoping that she could be vegan and she has been. My dog is 11 years old. That's why I was confused because looking back, I realized I, I had done that video with Dave before I got her. And I, in my head all these years, I thought I had already had my dog at that point. But no, it was, it was many months before she came into my life. 
And I was really looking into this option to think, okay, like how do I, and, and not only how, but is it helpful for, for my dog? And Jason actually had a similar experience because before he got his dog, he got cats. And I remember Jason, it actually was at the same festival, but a few years later that you had that conversation with the man that had that show about cats. You're going to have to remind me. Jackson Galaxy. Right? Mm-hmm. That was also at what became VegFest, but you know, I'm thinking about as World Fest. So that festival made a big impact on both of our lives. But Jason, I think this is an interesting thing to discuss that reflecting on this decision, you know, for our personal lives, clearly as human beings, it's easy for us to make, well, I guess easy isn't always the best word, but but we can consider our options. We can experiment when it comes to the food that we consume. But I think the reason it triggers people when it comes to animals is that they don't have the same voice that we do. So we can't ask them like, hey, are you okay with eating a vegan diet? And I think that's why people feel so offended. But to your point, Lindsay, these dogs are depending on us to make the decisions for them no matter what. So whatever dog food we give them is our choice, not theirs, unless they refuse to eat it, which Jason has had some experience with, with his dog and mine too at times. Like they can be picky eaters, but sometimes they want something added to it or sometimes they want a little variety or something. I don't think it's it's that they don't want vegan plant-based food. It's just like they want a different taste, first of all. And second of all, you know, to your point, Lindsay, when it comes to the nutrition side of it, I think people are so concerned because they have it, they've been brainwashed through the media and misinformed about what is really healthy for dogs to eat. Yes, definitely. And you brought up a really good point, Whitney, when you talk about choice. And I love this example because it speaks to so many of these different elements. And the example is about how dogs do in the transition of V-Dog. And what we see so consistently, and it always warms my heart and makes me laugh a little bit, is we get this about a weekly basis, if not more, depending on what customers send to us. But it's a video of a dog transitioning from their old food to the new food. So you mix in the V-Dog about one third with two thirds of their old food. Say it's a meat-based kibble with the V-Dog kibble. And the dogs often will eat the V-Dog kibble and spit out and leave the old kibble behind. And I'm telling you, we hear this so often. And of course, you know, each dog is different. They have different taste buds, just like humans, they're going to have preferences. So you can't create a blanket statement that all dogs are going to do this, but we just absolutely love to see that because it's just so adorable and sweet. It's like they're choosing to be vegan. And of course it's, you know, it's similar to a human child where we're responsible for them. We have the responsibility to, to research and choose the best option for them. But I just love that example of picturing them spitting out those little meat-based kibbles and gobbling up the V-Dog ones and then looking at their dog mom or dad and be like, okay, where's more of this vegan kibble stuff? This is good. (laughs) Yeah. Jason, I think hearing more of your story would be interesting as well, because I know that you've taken a lot of consideration with your cats, for example, because I think as, as vegan human beings, we know so much about the impacts of animal products on the environment, on our health, and on the animals, of course. So, It's a conflict for many of us when we get an animal that is not suitable for a plant-based diet like a cat. And some people choose to have their cats be vegan. And I think it can be done. I I also don't see it as like torturous to them. Like 
if their health is okay and you're feeding them nutritious foods and they're getting what they're, they need, I think that can be done. But I know for you, Jason, you chose not to feed your, your cats a vegan diet, but you did choose to feed your dog a vegan diet. And I'd love to hear more about like that mental choice for you and, and how it feels as a vegan. Well, first of all, I have made many jokes with Angela, who's your your social media director, Lindsay, and, and maybe with you on occasion of pushing you guys to come out with a, a niche line called VCAT, because, <laughs> because in particular, two of my cats, I have four cats, two of them, Julius and Lynx, who are, I call them the terrible tabbies. They love the V-Dog products as much as Bella does. I mean, I, I've seen them actually, you know, sneak a little piece of the breath bone or, or a little bit of the kinder kibble. I mean, it, it's really funny to me how my cats just love it as much as they do, as much as Bella does rather. And, you know, in terms of this conversation, Whitney, that you brought up around, you know, personal ethics versus what is biologically appropriate and healthy for our companion animals, it was a very difficult thing because... To preface this, I actually had a dog previous to Bella. His name was Gordon Pete, and I had him for a couple of years in a previous relationship, and he was a vegan dog, and he did very, very well on a, on a vegan diet. After that relationship ended and, and I was off on my own, about two or three years later, I decided to adopt some cats. And Whitney mentioned I spoke with Jackson Galaxy. I also consulted with a, a vegan veterinarian, mutual friend of ours called Armighty May, and, and I talked to actually three different people asking them, hey, is it possible if I adopt some cats, can I feed them a vegan diet? And all three of them had a very similar notion, which was technically you can, although the food will be so alkaline that you will need to introduce some sort of acidic element into their diet because their digestive tracts metabolize acidic food. You know, cats are out, they're, they're obligate carnivores. In the wild, they require you know, flesh and meat to survive. It's an acidic protein. So they all said you, you technically could do it, but you'll have to add some sort of acidic supplement to their food. And then about every two to three months, go and get their kidney function and their uric acid levels checked because they had all remarked that long-term they've seen some cats have some really severe kidney and urinary tract problems. And I thought, well, this doesn't sound natural to me to feed them a vegan diet. They're obligate carnivores. They need it to thrive. It was a really difficult choice because yeah, I've been vegan for this year. It's going on 23 years. It's something I feel very aligned with in terms of ethics, environment, human health, animal welfare. But I do feed my cats animals. You know, I, I feed them primarily fish. I do at times a tiny little bit of organic turkey for my one cat, Julius, Julius, because he digests that better. But it's been a conflict for me because everything that I do on a personal level and a professional level is to try and reduce the suffering and increase the welfare and the protection of animals on this planet. And so to know that I'm feeding my cats fish and on occasion turkey, you know, I've had some people be like, you're not a real vegan. You're a traitor to the cause. And I'm just oh, like, no. look, man, I've been doing this 23 years. It's a compromise I chose to make. It's not something that necessarily I feel great about, you know, but I also know that to rescue animals and to try and let them have the healthiest, longest life possible is something that is part of my mission on the planet. And so do my cats eat vegan sometimes? They eat greens, they eat vegetables, they'll steal some of, of Bella's food from time to time, but they do have to, in my opinion, my personal opinion, you know, eat some sort of acidic protein to be able to thrive. So that has been an ethical compromise that I've been living with since I adopted cats. It's been, it's been interesting, again, to get feedback from people on that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jason, you bring something up that 
I would love to further discuss is people coming at each other with these kind of accusations that are so heavy and negative, especially towards someone like you who is essentially, you know, an activist and doing so much in this space, both of you, Jason and Whitney. And it's so interesting to understand why people do that. I think it's one aspect to ask and say, hey, why do you feed your cats meat? But it's another thing to make an accusation and to create this sort of mean heaviness around it. And I I just, that gives me such a hard time, especially to people who are really trying their best, which I like to think is most people, you know, and I don't know if those are, are vegan people that are saying that things like that to you, but I really think that that gives vegans a bad name. I don't like the sense of attacking each other. There's always, in my opinion, there's always space to ask, hey, Jason, why do you feed your cats meat versus something like you're a terrible person and oh my God, I can't believe it. So it's just like, I wanted to to highlight that, Jason, because I I have a real issue with that. And I think it's it's in our nature, you know, to kind of be argumentative to, for some people, but I don't like it. So I, I wanted to mention, and sorry, you have to deal with that. We, it wears you down, you know? Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that, Lindsay, because it's something that Whitney and I have, have discussed in our personal life and also on the podcast. We talked a lot about this with Tony Akamoto from Plant Based on a Budget. We had her on twice uh, along with her business partner, our mutual friend, Michelle Kane. And, you know, the infighting and the sort of perfectionism or puritanism in the vegan movement is something that we, you know, we still get confronted with in many forms of you're not doing it right. You should do it better. You should do it different. And and people having an idea of, I don't know, you know, the, the analogy I use is I think some people think there's some sort of proverbial gold medal at the end of the road of of choosing this lifestyle, but we don't look at it that way. You know, to your point, I think people hopefully are doing their best. It's about incremental improvement. It's about self-awareness and maybe using that self-awareness to create positive substantive change in the world. And I can understand why some people would get angry that I feed my cats meat and feed them fish. I, I can absolutely understand it. To me, it's a compromise I'm willing to make to save and care for the lives of these animals. And, and you know, I often joke that the only thing holding me back is a space issue that once I get a little more land and a little more space, I'm going to rescue even more. And I also think it's important to realize that life is not a black and white experience. There's a lot of gray areas in the middle. There's a lot of compromises and considerations that often need to be made. And I think after doing it for so long, I'm, I'm comfortable with it now. But, you know, it's something that Whitney and I face on a greater level, Lindsay, of being in the vegan movement, being activists, of having people stick their noses in our butts a little a little too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is funny because that's also a double entendre for how dogs greet each other. Exactly. And, and maybe if humans <laughs> greeted each other by sniffing each other's butts, we'd have a kinder world. Yes, I think we might. I have to share a, a really crazy moment that happened as we were recording. I I don't even know what to to make of this, but but here we are having this discussion about the decisions we've made about our animals. And a huge part of what guided my decision was consulting with a vet. And the person that I was so thrilled to have at the very beginning of my vegan dog journey was Dr. Armighty May. She's based in Los Angeles, and she's a house call vet that is personally vegan. And she was a really big part of my 
journey with Evie, my dog, because I wanted to make sure that I was making a good decision. I wanted to make sure that I was raising a healthy dog. And I was nervous about that. You know, I kept second guessing myself. And I was second guessing myself throughout the entire process of, of raising a puppy because it was the first time I did it on my own. Well, this is nuts. She, out of nowhere, thanked me for a Yelp review that I left on her page back in 2013. But the thank you came through as we were recording this episode popped up on my phone. And my brain is a little blown right now because I don't know if there's something going on in the universe. But I was thinking of her because she too was uh, right there alongside. Um, she was might maybe even there at World Fest on that day that I spoke with Dave Middlesworth. So it's just kind of nuts. But, you know, it is worth bringing up because there are some incredible vegan vets out there. And, and uh, for anyone who wants to have someone there to consult with. I'm curious, Lindsay, if there are others that you could recommend. Is there a database of of vets that maybe they're not personally vegan, but they are supportive of the vegan lifestyle for dogs? Yes. So it's definitely going to depend on which area you're in. There are definitely more veg-friendly vets in in cities and different areas. And I don't know off the top of my head about a specific database, but on the VDOG website, we have a veterinarians page where we list a bunch of quotes from veterinarians that are vegan themselves or support this type of diets for dogs. We have some resources on that page as well. We recently did an interview, a video interview with Dr. Lorelai Wakefield, who is another wonderful vegan veterinarian, so sweet and helpful. And that's available I believe it's on our social media, if not on our website as well. But we know these things are really important resources for people. So we're trying to grow them. And especially hearing from both of you, Jason and Whitney, how much a vegan vet impacted your decision. I think it's, you know, it it definitely emphasizes the importance of these professionals in the space. And we look to doctors for for comfort and for guidance and understanding. And it's another interesting topic to discuss is when your vet doesn't support this diet, what do you do? And we have resources on our veterinarians page for that as well. And and on our blog, there's a post called something like, what do I do if my veterinarian doesn't support this diet? So that's a whole additional area of things that I'm happy to, to chat more about. But we really look to these professionals for this advice and, and to confirm that we're making these correct decisions. So we try to provide those resources for our customers as well, like new to the whole world of vegan dogs and, and understanding everything that comes with it. And that that's so wonderful. I think there's like a fear of not only making the wrong decisions for our animals, but I've also had moments of feeling like I would be judged by a vet because after I worked with Dr. Amity May, I moved to a different part of Los Angeles and it was harder to connect with her on a regular basis, even though she does house calls. I started going to vets that were local in my area and I was nervous to let them know that I was feeding my dog a plant-based diet. I will say that as far as I can recall, All of the vets that I have spoken to, including one of my friends who's a phenomenal vet, none of them have judged me for V, or at least not verbally (laughs) to my knowledge, but (laughs) none of them have said, oh my gosh, you have to take your dog off of this diet. It's going to kill them, you know? And again, my, my dog is. 11 years old. She actually had a vet visit yesterday. She's got fantastic blood work. She's been vegan 
almost her entire life. I did transition her off of what she was fed before she came into my life, but she was under a year old when, when I brought her into my life and I did do the whole transition that you're describing, Lindsay. I'm actually curious on that note, back in 2009, when, when I got Evie, it was hard to figure out what to feed a puppy. And I'm curious now with uh, any of the developments that have happened, like is V-Dog suitable for puppies? What do you recommend for dogs that are under a year old? Mm-hmm. This is definitely one of our top questions. Like Jason mentions the the top uh, questions he gets, I guess in a different way. Those are more like maybe disgruntled questions, <laughs> but this is a very reasonable question in, in our top set of questions that we get. Can puppies be vegan? Is V-Dog suitable for puppies? And what we say is that V-Dog, so V-Dog is an AFCO formulation, which is the organization that sets the guidelines for nutrition for dogs. So currently V-Dog is formulated with AFCO standards for adult dogs, 12 months and up. So what we tell people is first and foremost, we can officially recommend it for puppies. That being said, we have some information on our site if you type in puppies, where it recommends how you can adjust the food to make it suitable for puppies. Of course, this is really going to depend on the puppy's lifestyle and and their growth pattern and caloric intake. So it's a little bit less than straightforward. It's it's definitely perfect and suitable for dogs 12 months and up, but younger puppies, there isn't a pre-formulated food out there right now for vegan dog food. So that's something definitely on the table here at V-Dog and something that we are investigating and looking into. But definitely you can you can reach out to us for more information on puppies as we have lots of details on that. That's wonderful. And I'm, I'm curious because I'm sure anything I shared back in 2009 is quite outdated. I used a product Gosh, I have to look up what it's called. It was a powdered formula that I had to add in and make my own recipe by hand. And there are videos of me doing this. I actually baked my own puppy kibble for Evie because there weren't any products out there. And it sounds like it's still either not in existence or really hard to find, Lindsay. And that's really interesting to me because the plant-based diet for dogs has definitely grown in popularity. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes. Of course, there are other brands out there that you can buy in stores and online. Back in in 2009, V-Dog was one of the only accessible ones in the US that I recall. But now we have some more options. And I think that's wonderful because the more that we can get into this industry and 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 make it less of a odd choice, the better. Mm-hmm. Going back to what I had said earlier about like feeling judged by vets, while that wasn't quite an experience I've had, I have had an experience of going into stores where they sell dog food and being judged by the employees. In fact, actually, it happened fairly recently. The person at the front desk like made a little joke about vegan dogs, not realizing that my dog was vegan. And so, I felt really uncomfortable buying something from the store. And, you know, I'm sure that was just this employee's personal opinion. And just like somebody would make fun of vegans at, at a, a deli or something like, <laughs> like that, you know, I, I've been through that a lot personally, but it can certainly feel really uncomfortable. And I think that's why it's great that there are, are more brands out there to show like it's not just some outlier. It's actually something that more and more people are trying. I'm curious, Lindsay, on that note, how many of your customers, if, if you had to get, well, if you have any data around this, like 
is it just vegans that are are supporting V-Dog or do you find that even like non-vegan customers are coming in and choosing to feed their dogs a plant-based diet? Mm-hmm. In majority, the customers are vegan, for sure. The vast majority of them are. There are smaller segments of people who choose this food for other reasons. And out of that small sort of slice of the vegan pie chart, if you envision it that way, they are usually people who their dogs are suffering from allergies. So there was a study that came out a few years ago that showed the top allergens in dog food are actually beef, chicken, dairy, and eggs. And there's a link to that site on on our V-Dog website if anyone wants to investigate further. But these ingredients, these animal products make dogs so itchy and they have tummy troubles, their hair falls out, they get lots of issues if they're allergic to these animal products. So out of that smaller slice of the pie, in addition to people being vegan, they choose this product because they've looked elsewhere and they cannot find anything that their dog likes and that works. We have like a miracle stories tab on our testimonials page where you can see, I mean, some of these stories are just so amazing. The dogs are really not doing well at all. They're really suffering. And there's one story where the dog's aunt actually happened to be vegan and she advised her, I think it was her brother, to say, hey, you should try this food. You know, the guy was in no way vegan, you know, like probably a big meat eater who would never have thought of this food for their dog. But she was really doing terribly and they switched her over and she started recovering and it was it was a really miraculous recovery and she did so well. So there, there are a lot of stories like that. And so I would say definitely the allergies component is something that is is a growing piece of the puzzle because these dogs are they tend to be allergic to to animal products and it's really interesting too because the pet food industry has really pinned the allergies on grains there's a lot of information circulating now about grains and it's a whole other topic but traditionally grains have really become the scapegoat for allergies so there's this really big move in the past several years towards grain-free diets now v-dog has always had a variety of healthy grains in our formula We've essentially had the same formula for 15 years now. We really, it works. The dogs love it. It performs so well. So we really don't make any changes to it, anything drastic. So we've always had grains in our food. And from what we see, the dogs, especially allergy prone dogs, do so fantastic on it when they switch over. It's an easy transition. So it's something interesting to note as far as people thinking about why their dogs are itching and grains and, and cross over to the, the vegan side of things too. I mean, it just shows that just like the human diet, there's so much fear around ingredients. You know, it, it's like, as Jason was saying too, there's so much judgment about what we eat as human beings, what we feed our animals. And I think it's like, part of this bigger desire to survive and to control things. It's like, oh, if only I can find the perfect diet for myself, I can live longer. If I can find the perfect diet for my animals in my life, then maybe they'll live a long life. And I can really relate to that. I mean, both of those things are big considerations. I guess then we think about the mental health side of this, the emotional toll of constantly being in fear. And this does come up so much. And and you have to bypass a lot of marketing because unfortunately, a lot of brands for both humans and uh, animals capitalize on this fear. And they they use their marketing to say, oh, we're 
we're grain free or or we're this free or that free. And suddenly it's got somebody buying something when they don't even know if it's the right decision for their animal. And that's why I'm really passionate about consulting with doctors for humans and vets for animals. It's like, we can't just assume because something we saw in a package or, or we saw in a media video or article or something that that's the truth and that's the right situation for us. And I'm sure you face that all the time as a company, people coming and questioning everything that you're doing. It's got to be pretty stressful. Oh, I think we're used to it at this point. And we really just want what's best for the dogs. I mean, the priority is their health. We want them to be healthy. And then it's really interesting because on top of that, you can't just put out a healthy product. The dogs have to like it even more so than humans. You know, us humans, we can like chug a a protein smoothie where it's like, maybe it's like gritty or it's not our favorite protein powder, but we're like, all right, this is good for us. We can eat this. We know the ingredients are really clean and healthy, but doesn't doesn't swing that way with dogs. It's just like they have to really love it. So it's interesting to think about that too, how the formula has to be spot on with taste. I'm thinking about something Jason said about cats. Can I circle back to that? Oh, of course. I'll, we can always circle back to cats. <laughs> okay. I do love cats too, but I'm a dog person. So we might have to have that debate at some point, but they're both wonderful. But one thing you said, Jason, stuck out to me and, and I wanted to not so much push back, but just bring it up because you mentioned the, the phrase in the wild when speaking about cats. And I think that could be really tricky when we mention that for either cats or dogs. So of course, it's a little bit different with cats because outdoor cats exist and they are outside, they are hunting, but not all cats are. I don't know if your cats are or not, Jason, or if they're indoor or outdoor, but with dogs, very much, very rarely are they, you know, outdoor dogs. Like some people have hunting dogs and things like that which of course is a different category, but that phrase like, oh, in the wild, they would do X, Y, and Z. I think that that gets us a little bit in trouble when discussing things because what I like to bring up is discussing the topic of plant-based diets for our companions like right now and like based on the reality of like what we're doing right now. And that's more often in our home, either cooking or opening a package for them. So that was something I wanted to uh, to touch on there. No, and I'm glad you did, Lindsay, because I think that to your point, that sort of framework very much influences the conversation of human nutrition as well in terms of people talking about the caveman diet or the carnivore diet or the paleo diet is, hey, let's look at what we think our paleolithic ancestors ate. And, you know, I think for a lot of reasons, you know, they 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 push, you know, a grain-free high meat diet. But then, you know, it's interesting because I feel like with anything, this is part of a larger conversation of people wanting to eat as natural or as close to the earth as possible. And this idea of eating like our ancestors did or our companion animals animals eating as their ancestors did hundreds or even thousands of years ago. But to your point, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up and, and did push back a little bit, Lindsay, because, you know, right now in 2021, looking at not only what is the healthiest diet for humanity and the planet, but also with our animals being inside the house, my cats and my dogs are, are, are not outdoor hunters. They don't, I don't let them go out and roam and find and kill and eat things. And so, of course, because they're, they're indoors and they're part of this more modernized lifestyle, we need to think about what is relevant for right now, to your point. And I agree with that. I think, though, it, it, is, it colors an interesting mentality, which is something I wanted to bring up before which it's almost like there's an interesting link between people's sense of self, their identity, 
and the kind of companion animal they choose. You know, we hear the kind of these things of like, what is sort of the, the cliche or the colloquial phrase that, quote, owners, guardians will sometimes pick dogs that either look like them or reflect, you know, part of their personality. And I wonder if the reticence and the pushback to move dogs toward a plant-based diet is part of a mentality of, no, no, they, they need to eat, eat meat because they're savage. Because like you said, they're wolves. And and if I have a tough dog and I have a, a, an aggressive dog and my dog is eating meat, then that means by proxy, because that's my companion and that's what I've chosen, that that dog is a reflection of me and, and I'm tough and I'm savage and I'm, I, and I'm wild too. It's almost like maybe there's a mentality of a person having their dog live a certain way because it's a reflection on them is what I'm saying. Yes. Definitely. And our dogs, our children, I think in a way are, are mirrors of our ourselves and our choices. So I think that absolutely reflects. And yeah, the fact that most of our customers are vegan themselves, it's almost like the stepping stone, right? That is a pretty big step for people to skip over for them to not be vegan or make a connection, whether it's for whichever reason, it's for you know animal ethics or environment or health. To skip over that and then feed it to their dog is is a pretty big jump. So the majority of people that feed V-Dog are definitely vegan. And then, you know, it's it takes like a big situation like for their dog to be really sick or them not finding anything else. But yes, I think it's definitely these types of choices are definitely reflective of, of a bigger conversation and how humans sort of interact with these decisions that are in a way ego-based and reflect our choices on how to live as humans. I want to loop back, Lindsay, to a few moments ago when, well, actually at the very beginning, rather, when you were saying how as a company, you choose to respond to these sort of inquiries we've been discussing with a level of, I believe you said, maybe a paraphr- like compassion, patience, and facts. And you said facts. And I'm curious, not only from an anecdotal, but perhaps a actual research-backed study perspective. The, the one that I'm aware of is like, there was who was the border collie that lived a super long time? What was the dog's name? That was Bramble. Bramble, right? Thank you. Yeah. So, so I, Bramble lived something like twenty five years, right, and was on was on a vegan diet. And so, I know that's somewhat anecdotal. It's not a research study, but I'm curious when you say you respond to people with facts. Are there any more anecdotes other than Bramble of I- extreme longevity for vegan dogs? And, and are there any studies or links that you point people to? so that they can go down the research rabbit hole a little bit more. What do you usually send to people in terms of, of, of those factual supportive elements? Mm-hmm. Yes. So a lot of the information surrounding this diet is anecdotal, and there definitely needs to be more scientific research-backed evidence for sure. We don't doubt that, and we're trying to work towards that. The most recent uh, scientific study that was done was at Ross Veterinary University, and there was an abstract that was published on the study so far. And what they did is they transitioned a volunteer group of dogs from meat-based diets over to vegan food, and they used V-Dog in this study. And all of the dogs' blood tests and all of their echocardiograms and panels were perfectly normal and above normal and in a good way. So that's the, the most recent science that was done. But when I speak about our customer support and our social media community management and how we respond with 
kindness, patience, and facts. The facts really comes down to this, the simple facts, Jason. It's dogs are omnivores. They don't need meat to thrive. Really just factual things that are so far from what we've been taught traditionally by, you know, whether it's commercials with these big mega corporations and, and the meat-based, wolf-based food. So it's really those simple facts. And then the bigger picture facts of scientific data and longevity are in addition to those. And as far as longevity goes, there is Bramble the Collie who has fed a plant-based diet and lived till over 20 years old. She's was over in the UK. We actually did an interview with her mom several years ago on our blog, which is really fun to speak with her. And we see seniors thrive on this food all the time. So there's also a lot of stories on our website about senior dogs. And we love hearing from people who have been customers for like the full, you know, 15 plus years that we've been in business. And they're they're like, my dog is this age. So again, that's there's a lot of anecdotal evidence around that as well. And there needs to be more scientific data, but the dogs tend to live well into their golden years on these types of foods, which we're very fortunate to understand that. So one thing that Whitney and I are huge here on on the podcast is uh, the idea of conscious languaging and how the words we use and the the language that we wield in the world creates a framework of how we perceive things. I mean, I, I don't want to be so cliche as to say it creates our own reality, but certainly I think that how we perceive things and our belief systems and the language you, we use do create an experience of, of reality here for ourselves. And to loop back to some of the language that that we use in regard to the animals in our lives, Whitney, you alluded to how some people refer to themselves as pet owners, and we prefer, you know, guardians or caretakers. I'm trying to use that word a little bit more. And also, what what I've noticed that I get some interesting pushback on sometimes, not a crazy amount, but the movement that I've seen the past few years, this is for both of you, a question and observation of people calling themselves pet parents, that this is my dog to her. This is, you know, this is, this is my cat. They're like family to me. They're like sons and daughters. And, and honestly, like <laughs> the, the love and the care that I have for my animals, that really resonates. You know, they, they, they feel like family. They feel like the care and the love that I had for them is the depth and the breadth that I, I and I, I don't have any human children, but like in a framework that I would feel for a human child, you know, and some people are like, you're not a parent. They're not your son and daughter. You know, th this is crazy talk. People push back on that kind of language. And so I'm curious, Lindsay, for you personally in your life, what kind of language you use in regard to your dogs, how language affects our relationship with our companions. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Speaking for me personally, I've always been an animal-obsessed, dog-obsessed person. And that being said, I like to point out you don't even need to like animals to be vegan. That's important because they have the basic right to live and to have basic rights, whether you're an animal crazy person like me or not. But I am that person and I'm obsessed with my dog. He is totally like a son to me. Sometimes I just look at him and I'm like, how do I love you so much? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how. And so I, I definitely feel that what I could gather the same way as you, Jason. I like to say dog mom, dog dad. And yeah, I, th I think it resonates with people. I, I personally don't like the term owner. It doesn't feel right to me. But again, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, I wouldn't chastise someone for using it. I, I think that there are other more important things to discuss as much as if I disagree with it or I don't 
like it. I'd rather talk about something more productive. So as much as we use dog parents, dog mom, dog dad in my personal life, if someone's going to use, I think there are plenty of other terms that are, are totally fine. Also companions, guardians, there, there are plenty to use. I would say owner is my definitely my least favorite. I, I feel like people have been shifting away from it a little bit, but when I hear it, I kind of, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. But I usually don't make a, you know, huge, huge debate over it at least. Right. Cause it, it's not worth getting into a debate because maybe somebody's just used to saying those terms. I mean, I slip into it myself. I'm not, I'm certainly not perfect with my language and it's something that I, I try to be aware of and, and might make a mistake in, but also to your point, Lindsay, it, it's usually not something I want to debate somebody on because people use language for all sorts of different reasons. It does remind me of this article in, ironically, a publication called The Guardian that I've been wanting to bring up on this podcast for some time. So this is a good good uh, one to bring back to. And you might have seen this, Lindsay, because I think it came out in 2017. The title of the article is, Should We Stop Keeping Pets? And I there's a couple points to bring up in it. One phrase in it that really resonated with me is how ultimately we bring animals into our lives because we want them. Then we dictate what they eat, where they live, how they behave, how they look, even whether they get to keep their sex organs. And so we're treating animals in some ways as commodities. And it's interesting because as the article points out, this is at odds with how we feel about them because uh, the pet industry, and that's another term. <laughs> I would love to hear like, how can we shift? Because we think of pet store and pet industry. So what do we call that instead is one question. But regardless, we spend so much money on them. There's studies that have found that we might even love them more than our, our human romantic partners. <laughs> we consider them to, to the point that's been brought up our children or our friends. We think of them as members of our family. And yet, in a lot of ways, we do treat them as commodities. So it's fascinating. I'm curious, have you read this article or similar articles, Lindsay? And and how do you feel about that overall? Like this idea of like, should they really be pets? Or like, is there something that we can transition into to make them truly feel like a member of a family? Yes, I have read that article and a couple of things for the term pet, pet industry, pet food. I feel that the word pet isn't innately negative. I think it's kind of an endearing term, honestly. I don't think it's the same, and this is my personal take on it, and I think people will have different versions of this, but I see it I don't see it as that bad. I think that ownership is an issue, but pet, you know, pet can be an endearing term. So I do see that in a bit of a different category. Happy to talk more about what each of you think about that part of it as well. And then for the other aspect of should we even have pets, I probably have a bit of an unpopular opinion here, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and talk about my personal feeling on this. And it kind of breaks my heart because I'm so obsessed with my dog and I can't imagine not having dogs. But I think if you look at it from a rational, ethical standpoint, we shouldn't have pets. That being said, Right now, there are millions of, of animals that need to be adopted. So I don't feel we could talk about the conversation of not having pets until we fully grasp and resolve this the situation with homeless pets. And will that ever be fully resolved? And if not, I think that having companion animals 
should and can still exist because these are animals without homes. So taking them in is innately better than, and giving them loving homes is obviously ideal to them being, you know, euthanized or being out on the streets and, and of the sort. But I think that's um, probably an unpopular opinion because it's really hard for us to see our lives without pets. And some people might be shocked to hear me say that because I have always been a huge dog lover and I really can't see them. But it's in the context, can't see my life without dogs, I mean, and having it in the context of tomorrow, there should be no more pets. That's not what I mean. It's really in the, the scale and the spectrum of first understanding and resolving the current situation of homeless pets and then taking the next step of if we're in this like evolved universe where there are the situation has been handled which is a whole nother topic then it's really at that point is where we can reassess and discuss like do we bring more pets into this world just for our enjoyment and it almost feels like the conversation of well if you stop breeding cows for meat or dairy then there won't be any more cows and then it makes you think well is bringing them into this world just for a few short years of suffering any type of life? And of course, that's, you know, pets are, most of them are, are luckily spoiled, at least our animals, and they're not living this life of suffering. But these are the things it makes me think of and, and brings up as far as bringing more into the animals into the world. And the last thing I'll say is, of course, the importance of adopting over buying from breeders, whether they're a respectable breeder or not. When there's money involved and animals are commoditized as a business, often their best interest isn't kept in mind. So being able to adopt, there are so many amazing resources now. Even if there's there's a dog that or a cat that you love that's a state over and you have the accessibility to reach them, find that perfect animal and do a bit of that due diligence versus seeking out one that's for sale, that is so important is, is, is adopting and not shopping. I'm glad that you brought that up because that was actually going to be my next question. If if that is part of V Dog's sort of activism campaign, is is whether or not the company you know publicly espouses that philosophy of adopt don't shop. Is that something that as a corporation you guys actively promote in terms of activism? One hundred percent. Yes, we're proponents of adopt don't shop. We post about it often on social media. We've done campaigns around it. We work with a lot of rescues and sanctuaries all around the US where we either donate product, whether it's slightly damaged product that we can't sell, or we work in various collaborations with these rescues. But absolutely, it's a huge, huge part of what we do. And everyone at V-Dog has rescue dogs, those of us that have dogs. So it's so, so important to to something that motivates us. Absolutely. Beautiful. Okay. I have a bit of a a funny slash silly question, but it's something that I need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Do you ever get emails or correspondence from people wanting to feed your products to companion animals that are not dogs or cats? Do you ever get an email of like, hey, I've been feeding kinder kibble to my chinchilla. The chinchilla loves it. Do you ever get really, you know, horses, llamas? I'm just curious from the most, I guess, unusual type of correspondence you've received. What kind of animals, if any, have people said they've been feeding your products to? And and, and what are the results? Jason, yes. <laughs> I love this question. And we get this all the time. It's like, 
We'd love to hear it too. I, I would say the most popular is pigs. We even had a customer in Hawaii where her vet approved for her pig to eat V-Dog. I don't know if it was like her complete diet or if it was in addition to something else, but her pig loves the breath bones too, which I think is so cute and adorable. We have heard from so many people that their cats steal the, the V-Dog, just like you mentioned. And we have this really funny video of a cat, like there was a dog food bowl and the cat like stealth mode sneaks out from under this like armoire behind the bowl and just the paw comes out and they're like scooping the kibble and sneaking away with it. So cute and funny. So we get a lot of cats. Actually, there's a veterinarian that we work with who did something with, he did some kind of research with, I believe it was hyenas and he fed V-Dog to the hyenas and they very much so enjoyed it, which they're pretty carnivorous. So that's interesting. So yes, we, we hear all the time we hear, when are you guys going to start V-Horse or V-Pig or V-Cat? We haven't gotten the request for V-Hyena yet. That was just one little side story. But yeah, we hear all sorts of, of adorable things like that. And, and what it comes down to is that it's formulated for dogs, for adult dogs. But these other animals, it's safe for them to snack on. They can have it as little treats. It's safe for the cats to snack on, little piggies and and probably horses too. Just make sure you email us before you you start anything like that and we can get you more specific information. But but yeah, we hear that often. Well, I think that would make for an amazing April Fool's campaign this year as, as you announce that you have finally formulated V Hyena. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I'm just putting it out there. It would be really good for social media. And you know, Coming back to that article I'd mentioned since you brought up rescuing, one of the things that I loved in that article from The Guardian is some people that were featured in it. One of them refers to their rescue dogs as refugees, (laughs) which I thought was, (laughs) was an interesting term to use. And, you know, one other point about that article to explore is how it's hard for us to tell if our animals are happy being our pets or companions, right? Like the article says, is it true that pets have more voice or is it that we're putting words into their mouth? Are we using them on social media? I mean, one trend that's been big on platforms like TikTok, and I don't know if you've seen this, Lindsay, but now they have these like buttons that press that dogs can press to alert their owners or, or see here I go again with that term to alert the, the their parents their their companions when they want to go outside when they want to eat certain foods and it, it sounds really cool because it's like oh my my dog can c- communicate with me better and and I think that's smart I certainly have developed a language of sorts with my dog as far as I'm aware so that she can alert me when she needs certain things But there are plenty of times where I really have no idea what she's saying. And I think as humans, we have this fascination with giving our animals a voice. And there's that movie Up with the dogs that have the collars so that they can actually speak. And we yearn for that. But, you know, in those cases, we're literally putting words into their mouth. And we have no idea how they're actually feeling. We're just interpreting them interpreting their behavior, right? And it's kind of interesting in that sense. Clearly, if if we opened up the door and said, hey, you're free to leave, they're probably not going to leave because we've, we're giving them water, food, and shelter, and it's in their best interest to stick around. But that's also because we've, we've conditioned them to have that situation. And, you know, going back to what you're saying, Lindsay, earlier, 
sometimes I think about that with my dog. I just brought her back from the vet yesterday where she hates going. And my heart was breaking because I'm sitting here thinking, I'm trying to take care of you and, and get you some treatment. But I don't know if she understands that. Like, what if she thinks I'm taking her someplace to torture her for the day? You know, like, I don't know. And it's like that part of having an animal is really challenging. Yeah, I think about that a lot, especially with my little current dog. He's a little Chihuahua rescue. He's about, I think, eight years old at this point, and he's very fearful. He's very attached to me, but he's afraid of everyone else pretty much until he he knows them for like years, honestly. So similar with the vet, I'm like, he has no idea what's happening and just, oh, just trust me. It's going to be okay. Especially right now with COVID, you can't even go in with them. I don't know if this was your experience, Whitney, but recently when I took him in, you kind of have to hand him off to the, the vet tech. And I was like, oh no, he was totally fine. You know, I was just worried, but it's like the same thing. And I think it really depends on the dog too. Like for example, thinking of the communication we have with them and understanding what they want. Like this little guy, he's just so happy as long as he's near me and he's can sleep on a soft surface. And, you know, he likes to play with his toys and eat his food, have a snack. So he, he is, it, it appears that he's happy and I feel we can communicate and he tells me when he wants something, but of course there's probably more he's thinking. And I feel that they, they are conscious beings that have wants and needs and desires. So it's impossible for us to fully understand those. But to juxtapose that, a previous dog I had when I was a bit younger, he was very needy. I love him. (laughs) Rest in peace. But he was totally different. Like He was always telling me, trying to tell me something he wanted. And he was the type of dog where I was like, man, like he would be so happy just running around in fields right now. He was just very, he didn't seem as at nearly as at ease as my current dog. So I think it's really poignant to bring up different dogs have personalities. They're different, just like us humans. And it's convoluted, right? It's layered because my little chihuahua might be happy here, but that's that's him. That's his personality and other dogs. And, and unfortunately, we've bred them to be so specific. So he was very energetic. Uh, and if a dog is bred to run or to hunt, unfortunately, or things like that, that's it's so in their brain and in their motivations these things and then to just put them in a house all day and and based on the human's lifestyle that's what dictates what they do it brings to mind breeding and and how that has played into it as well and we kind of want a dog that looks a certain way and unfortunately sometimes they maybe they're not suited as well for for being in a house most of the day or maybe they don't want to sleep all day like my chihuahua does so that that comes to mind when when thinking about a dog's wants and needs as related to their personality yeah this is an ongoing thing to try and figure out you know and and i think one of the reasons that i so very much want to move out of the city a bit and get a little bit more land is to is to honestly i mean Part of it is like, yes, would I like land? Of course. But if I'm honest about my motivations to get acreage and and be in more nature is for them. You know, the idea of not being so close to a freeway or the possibility of, of them getting run over by a car per se and having more natural space for not only my dog, but for my cats to go outside. Because, my, you know, my reticence to letting them out is cars, freeway, people, city life, you know? And so to your point, Lindsay, you know, one of, one of my big motivations to, I guess, upgrade my living situation is for them. And I'm, and I'm not ashamed to say it. It's like, yeah, I, of course I'd like to do it for me, but I also want to do it for my animals. Cause I do think that they would be happier having, 
access to more nature and, you know, less city life and less of the dangers of city life. And again, I don't know, is that actually what they want? Or to Whitney's point, is that me just transposing my hopes and dreams onto them? I, it's very difficult. And I wish we would put more technology into decoding animal language. You know how now we have those digital devices that, you know, travelers take around and they put in front of people's faces and it will translate in real time. And I'm like, where are the linguists and the veterinarians working on translating dog and cat? Why have we not figured that out yet? We're talking about AI. We're talking about uploading consciousness. We're, we're talking about colonizing Mars in 30 years. I want to be able to talk to my dog. Yes. <laughs> bring it on. I, well, I mean, I guess we could say bring it on, but what if it's not what we expect? And what if it's I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, you know, we just like, just like both of you are saying, it's like we like to think we know that they want to run free in all this, these beautiful fields of flowers. But who knows? I, I'd like to think that it would be great, but we don't know. <laughs> we don't know either. It could be. It could be like you know that like, arr, arr, like feed me, asshole. What? What? Yeah. What did you just? What? There's an. Episode you think I'm an of- asshole? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know you thought I was an asshole. That's news to me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, there's an episode of a cartoon that I'm totally going to forget the name of right now where the dog is able to talk and he like punishes the humans for neutering him and he's just like pissed off that they took his balls away. I wish I could remember the um <laughs> the name of the cartoon, but this is this is a very relevant example. So we don't know what they what they're going to say, you know. I feel like I need to google that immediately after this episode and we can put it in the show notes cuz now I need to see cuz on yeah, if someone if someone took my balls against my will, I'd probably be pretty angry too, to be honest. I would. Right. Yeah, I know. That's another thing is that it's a, a double-edged sword because I also feel that, oof, it's not a good thing, but we also, we need to spay and neuter so there aren't more dogs joining the the population of needing homes. And But ethically, that's a hard one, I know. Yeah. The other thing that's hard for me too, and, and this is sort of a side note, is trying to contend with people who treat their animals very differently. And uh I live in a neighborhood in Los Angeles where quite often, and this has happened in in several neighborhoods in Los Angeles, it's not just the one I'm in now, that I will often see dogs roaming the street with no collar and no kind of identification. And Whitney and I have actually gone on missions like this. And Whitney, there might be one that comes to mind. There have been many moments over the years where we'd see a dog roaming the street, we'd stop the car, we'd pull over, we'd literally run after this dog, you know, like, oh my God, it's okay. You know, you're lost. We don't want you to run into traffic only to find that, you know, a couple houses away, we'd meet a person that'd be like, oh no, 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 that's my dog. It's okay. It's like, Mm -hmm. your dog was running in the street, literally maybe, you know, could get, could have gotten hit by a car and they're just so nonchalant about it. They're just like, yeah, that's just what we do. And I find that, you know, in my current neighborhood too, is I, I I have chased down dogs on foot only to find like, oh, you live over there and you're playing in the middle of the street and this car almost hits you. Like, what the hell is going on? And it's really difficult because certain people see that as okay. They're just going to let their dogs out to run in the middle of the street. And if they, you know, it's like if they get hit, they get hit. And I'm not anywhere near that level of nonchalant. But I observe that so many people are, and it's it's been a source of frustration because, you know, part of me wants to yell at someone and cuss them out for doing it. But if they see it as normal and they were raised in sort of a family situation or generations of that's just how you treat your animals, it's almost like 
nothing I say is going to change that if, if that's how they view their animals. It's a very tricky thing. Yeah. And I think that's important to bring up, Jason, because we are sort of in this echo chamber, right, of like animal loving vegans. So the three of us are probably totally on the same page about running after dogs and rescuing them. And I would totally rather be that weirdo of like walking up to a dog, like it's happened before where a dog like kind of rounds the corner and I'm like, oh my gosh, this dog needs me to save them. And I'm like walking over to the dog and I'm like, hi, are you okay? And then like their human like rounds the corner after them and they just like look at me like I'm this <laughs> incredibly weird person. I'm like, hey, I'd rather risk it if I could help the dog, you know, if they were wandering alone. And that that has also happened where the dog did need to be brought, you know, and 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 scan their microchip and brought back home. But yeah, it's important to to bring up that not everyone, I hate to say it, but I guess, would you say that the majority of people don't feel the way we do? Or, or, or are you hopeful that more people are moving over to, it definitely seems like more people are are warming up to these ideas of really treating pets right. But Jason, would you do you feel based on, on where you are and what you've seen that, does it feel like the majority of people treat their pets and companions that way? Or how do you feel about that? Because that, that's something I need to, to reflect on more. Yeah, it's tough because outside of this cloistered bubble of our community and I suppose our, our general industry that we're all in, I do observe a lot of people in Los Angeles in particular who I'll walk by and I'll see their dogs chained up or I'll see their dogs sleeping outside. You know, even and it doesn't get that cold in LA. It's not like we have, you know, flurries or, or snow here, but it's just not how I would treat my dog, you know, and, and my judgment, I suppose, or my my observation rather is it seems like a lot of people keep dogs as just guard dogs, you know, guarding, guarding the yard, guarding the cars, guarding the house. And they're kind of filthy and they're not really clean. And, and it seems that you talk about the commodification of animals and it seems like dogs in particular, I don't see many guardian cats. I don't see many attack cats. That's, that's a very rare, it's very niche, but <laughs> dogs in particular in LA, uh, I live near downtown there's a lot that I walk by and see that that seem seem to be kept as guardians or attack dogs, and and they don't look visually like they're being treated that well. I'm not saying that they're being you know neglected or beaten or abused, but it's just not how I would treat a dog. You know, I'm I'm not going to personally get an animal for the sole purpose of them being a commodity to protect my property. You know that that's not I I don't personally agree with that. I think that having a dog that that that's a component of it. Yeah, I mean I I can understand why people depending on their situation, their status, where they live would want something like I don't know, a German shepherd, a doberman, a rottweiler, etc., sort of the this category of dogs that would be guard dogs, but I don't know, to have possession of a of an animal for the sole purpose of that. It just doesn't resonate with me. So again, I'm trying not to be judgmental. Whereas I'm trying to have my beliefs and my ethics transpose and tell other people how they should treat them. But, you know, if I perceive that a dog is being mistreated or a dog is being abused, you know, there, there's a situation with some some rabbits down the street that my girlfriend and I are working on on adopting them out and, and taking them to a sanctuary. Because if I get any hint of neglect or abuse, I'm going to try and step in and do whatever I can. It's interesting too, because it's, again, going back to what we discussed earlier, how it's it can be very similar to human beings. I mean, we judge people for what they eat all the time or how they live all the time. Like we see somebody's body and make all these assumptions about 
oh, you're not getting enough exercise or you're not eating the right foods. And I, I mean, there's as humans, we just tend to think that the, the way that we're doing something is the right way to do it. And, you know, also going back to what you're saying, Lindsay, about languaging, we don't know until we ask somebody. And of course, there are instances of abuse. And there's also the fact, as you brought up, Jason, of it's so much about somebody's lifestyle and perspective and their outlook on the world. You know, even my mom, she is so relaxed about her dogs. And granted, I think in a, in a nice way, she lives on a farm and her dogs get to run around outside. And some might say that that's a much better life than I give my dog who lives in an apartment unit or a small home or, you know, I don't maybe walk her as much as, as some other people do. I mean, there's so many judgments that could come to me. And I look at my mom and think like, oh, she just lets the dogs outside and they do whatever they want. And she doesn't know what they're doing. Like whenever I'm visiting my family, I feel so uncomfortable letting my dog just run around outside and then I'll stop and think about it. I'm like, she probably wants to do that. I'm nervous because I'm afraid she's going to get hurt or, you know, my parents live next to land where there's coyotes and like in my head, I'm super paranoid. But then sometimes I reflect and think like, am I too paranoid? Because I could perceive my mom as being too lenient. She takes her dogs to the vet far less than I do. You know, um, for instance, when I went to the vet yesterday, it was because I was told that my dog had some teeth issues and she got all these x-rays and I spent all this money taking care of my dog to get her teeth cleaned and teeth extracted. I mean, like the amount of money I've spent on vet visits is probably insane to my mom and maybe some other people. But I could look at her and think like, you don't take your dog to the vet often enough and don't their teeth need to be better taken care of. But I can't control how she she operates and she, you know, she can come right back at me with the exact opposite perspective. Maybe she thinks I'm being too paranoid. Maybe she thinks I'm spending too much money or doing things that are unnecessary. And I think it's so similar, like I said, to how we treat ourselves as human beings. Like everybody just has different perspectives and ways of, of care. Yeah. And I think as human beings, we are prone to categorizing things and comparing ourselves to others as well. So that's very natural. And I think where a lot of our, our mindset goes to. And for this, it's really interesting. Oh, but by the way, Jason, my, my chihuahua is very offended that you didn't include him on a, a list of guard dogs. So I just wanted to say that. Uh, <laughs> very ferocious. No. <laughs> but yeah, we, we could compare all day. There's so many different ways that you can be a guardian or a parent to a dog, but clearly there are, are some some strong lines, right? Like if you have your dog chained outside and they never come inside and it gets freezing cold, you know, you see those sad advertisements that various animal rights organizations do to try and, you know, get dog houses for for dogs that are outside. So there there do appear to be these wide options of like how to how to have a dog, but there are plenty of d- little different areas in between, like you mentioned, Whitney, like between your, your, you and your mom. So comparing, I think is very natural and it's, it's good for us to have these discussions and understand exactly what the connotations are and how that plays into the overall picture of the original question kind of, of like, should we have pets, dogs and cats as pets? And we can kind of bring all of these points together to relay back to that original question and reflect on it in that way. I think. I feel like there's, there's, you know, so much nuance, like we said, it's, it's really 
to me, sometimes not really a, a black or white issue, but more about the grays and our beliefs, how we're raised, our culture, our ethics. I mean, the human experience is such a diverse, myriad, complicated thing. And, you know, one thing we always say, Lindsay, here is is I think our philosophy with our brand Wellevator and here on This Might Get Uncomfortable is we're just trying to make as many experiments as possible and we're kind of fumbling our way through life and it's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to try new things. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to pick yourself back up and dust yourself off and keep trying again, as Aaliyah said, RIP Aaliyah. And with that, <laughs> I, I had to give a shout out to Aaliyah. I had to. It's it's like... <laughs> <laughs> and for the listener, thanks for being with us. All of the resources we mentioned today are going to be in our show notes at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go there and check out anything that we have there. And of course, Lindsay, we just appreciate you being so wonderful and open and fun and for answering the the questions because now I have in my mind's eye, the hyena, and I can't (laughs) get it out of my head. And that's not a bad thing. It's a very hilarious image. And to your point, if you guys have the resources, I think that would crush for April Fool's Day to Whitney's point. I would love that. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you again for being here. I'm, I'm just it's it's been a long time coming, as Jason said, based on, on my history. And this conversation has just been a really important one that we've never addressed before. So thank you. I To the listener, if you want to continue the discussion, we have the comment section on our website at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. We have our social media. We have our email as well. So if you have any comments, questions, further observations, please send them over. And uh, as you mentioned, Lindsay, we'll link to your blog as well because there's some really great resources there. And I'll be putting links to the Guardian uh, article and anything else, the video of me interviewing Dave back in 2009, as much as I want to hide my face from that video. Sometimes it's it's more important to share it than and move forward through the embarrassment. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll we'll do something with you on video too, Lindsay, because you're just so so lovely and we really appreciate getting to know you more. Oh, thank you so much, both of you. It's been so nice speaking with you on here. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.